Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. I'm really excited to be with you uh, for this retreat. I think that um, I've been thinking about this topic I've been thinking about uh, and just asking the Lord what he wanted me to share with you for the past couple weeks. And I just was asking myself about like the significance of the Eucharist in my life. And what occurred to me was that the most pivotal moments of my life, like looking back in hindsight, were in the presence of the Eucharist. Like I go back to uh, like my first encounter with the Lord. So it was 2005 before, I think that's before any of you were born. Is that right? I think that's right. Okay, all right, good. Okay, some of you are alive. Most of you were. <laughs> so 2005, I, uh, I was invited by uh, a girl that I had a huge crush on to the first fall retreat planning meeting. And um, it's a true story. The Lord, knows, the, Lord, the Lord knows the bait to put on the hook, so he got me there through her. Um, and... Uh, it was, it was a life-changing moment, right? So Father Damien Ferentz was still the priest at St. Mary's at the time, and he processed in from the back of the church with the monstrance, placed the Blessed Sacrament on the altar, and, uh, and like, I just, I remember being, like, bowled over by grace. Um, I, I've often thought back on my life and have thought, like, the only way to explain how my life has gone, how, I've, how I am a priest today, is, is in reference to that night. That somehow, somehow, like, the Lord introduced himself to me that night. Jeff, where are you, Jeff? Jeff was brand new. He had just started at St. Mary's. There you are. And uh, you were playing uh, Here I Am to Worship, Jeremy Camp, right? And, like, I just got knocked over by grace. And I remember, like, like, leaving the church that night feeling like I met somebody. Like, I don't know another way to put it. I don't know another way to put it. I think then fast forward to the, the spring of 2008. I was a freshman at the University of Dayton. I, uh, go, Flyers. go Flyers. I was a Dayton Flyer, Jen. Yeah, for one year. I was a Dayton Flyer for one year. I went to, uh, I went to Dayton because I was too afraid to apply to the seminary out of high school. But, I mean, junior year, senior year, I had been thinking about discernment. I've been thinking about uh, priesthood, and I was just petrified to actually pull the trigger and go. So I went to Dayton for, I had an awesome scholarship, and I was so afraid of like the Lord calling me to priesthood that I just ran from the Lord as fast as I could. I didn't, I, I, I didn't want to be anywhere near God. And yet, I, I, I would lay my head in the pillow at night, and I would hear the Lord like moving something in my heart, just like beckoning me back. And then, you know, I came back to help out on the spring retreat. It was, it was the spring of 2008. I was sitting right back there by that door. I had a chair. I had, my, you know, I had a candle in front of me to pray with teens Saturday night. And I felt so dead. I felt so far from the Lord. And I remember the Lord, like, that night, in the presence of Jesus, Jesus was right up here, like, he'll be here tonight. And, like, he spoke to me and just said, how about we try this my way and don't, and don't be afraid. I'm just sobbing, tears pouring out of my face. And again, it was like, like I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that moment being with Jesus that night in adoration. Then fast forward to uh, the spring of 2012. 
I'm in the seminary at this point. I'm in, I'm in first theology. And at first theology, at least back when I was in seminary, that's when you get installed as an acolyte. Acolyte is the, it's the first, it's like the first official step on the way to like priesthood. You become an official, um, an ordinary minister of communion. Like you have a special now public declaration. You're kneeling in front of the bishop saying, I want my life to be based on this. And so before the big ceremony, Bishop Grease is with my classmates and I. We're praying in this holy hour in this chapel behind the main chapel in the seminary. And we're praying these Eucharistic holy hour. And I'm sitting right here and the Blessed Sacrament is maybe two, three feet in front of my face. And I'm looking at Jesus in the monstrance. And it was, it was, it was, the, it was the moment when the, like, like the fork in the road became the most real thing for me, right? Because I'm staring at this tiny little wafer. Like up to this point, I've been discerning all these things and here I am looking at Jesus in this monstrance. And it became so clear, like so painfully, obviously clear that like, if this is not real, like this thing that I'm staring at, like if this is not real, then what I'm doing is absolutely insane, if what I'm looking at is just bread, then what I'm doing, being in a seminary, laying my life down, making this public declaration that this is what my life is going to be based on, this is stupid. Like, someone should stop me. <laughs> but then it was like, but if? But if this actually is him, then this seems to be the most rational thing I could do. To utterly throw my life away on the Lord right here. And like, I, I, that's the way I went. Fast forward to the fall of 2015. I'm on my, uh, my retreat right before my, my diaconate, or no, fall of 2014, right before I was in fourth theology. Up to this point, right, so I've been in the seminary now eight years up to this point. And like, I was pretty sure that I was called to be a priest, but like, I had never really heard in prayer Jesus say, this is what I want you to do. But I kept going, and I kept pressing forward. And there I was in the presence of Jesus. And in prayer, I've never shared this with anybody, but I'm going to share it with all of you right now. But in prayer, I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, like, in my spirit, in my mind, I'm with, like, the Christ child, this little infant Jesus. I've always been undone by the littleness of God, the humility of God. And there he is. He's with me. And, and he just says so honestly, so beautifully, I want you. And then Mary was in the scene with me, and she says, ask him for what? So I said, for what? And he just said, to be my priest. And that was it. Again, in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, that's when my call to priesthood came. Like, I was thinking about these moments, these, these decisive moments in the presence of Jesus, because it's like, these are life-defining moments. Like, these are the things that have shaped my life, that have changed my life, that have that have shaped and changed my story, that's led me to where I am. It's like, how do you account for that? Like, the, what kind of force is there in the universe that has the ability to alter the course of someone's story, of someone's life? Like, like jobs can affect us, you know, I don't know, ideas can intrigue us, but it's persons that really change and shape us. Like, this is the reality of Jesus, that... This is what you've been soaking in all weekend, that, that the Eucharist, it's not a what. It's a who. It's a who. It's a beating heart. Like you and me, we have, 
Because we're limited, finite creatures, we, we have to use all sorts of words over the course of our lifetime to express ourselves, right? Right now, I'm using all my words and my body language to express myself, to make what's inside of me outside of me, right? To express my interiority. But what if I wasn't a limited, finite creature? What if I was the unlimited, unbounded, infinitely powerful God with the ability to just speak one word to perfectly express myself? That's who Jesus is as the incarnate Son of God, the one who reveals the face of the Father, and that's what the Eucharist is. He is the Father's heart. The Eucharist is the Father's heart given. It's a who. It's not a what. And that's why it's so good. That's why it's so good that you guys are spending this weekend just soaking in this. Because as Catholics, we, there's this occupational hazard, that, especially in the priesthood and, and religious life. But I mean, for any of us who, who, are, who are Catholics, who are faithful, that because what we do is so routine, what happens is we become totally used to, utterly accustomed to things that you should never get used to. We get used to saying things that we should never tire of being amazed that we say. Things like, was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. Like how easily we just say those words in the creed every Sunday. Have you noticed that there's only one phrase in the creed that deserves a bow? It's not when we say God the Father. It's not when we say God the Holy. It's when, it's when God the Almighty, the Infinite, the Omnipotent, when God who is unbounded, the one who the heavens couldn't contain, lowered himself, became flesh in his own mother's womb. There's only one moment where we bow. It's at the mystery of the incarnation, and that's what the Eucharist is. It's the continuation of that mystery. But the thing is, we get used to these things. It becomes very blasé. We should beg for the grace. I just want to encourage you to beg for the grace this weekend for Eucharistic amazement. To rekindle in me, O God. Rekindle in me, O God. Rekindle in our church, O God a spirit of Eucharistic amazement to be overwhelmed by this gift. Like, and to entertain, if you're still struggling with this, entertain that question that I entertained before that institution of acolyte, that, that what if question. Like, like, what if all of this is actually real? Man, it just changes everything. It changes everything. So I was asked by uh, the team to speak this afternoon on the Eucharist, but under two aspects. Looking at the Eucharist as mirror and window. Mirror and window. I'm going to ask some very basic, basic questions, but I think clarity on the analogies is very helpful before we dive into it. So humor me for a moment, right? What is the function of a mirror? What does a mirror enable you to do? Someone tell me, what does a mirror enable you to do? You can shout it out if you know it. To, to see yourself. It reflects. The, uh, when a mirror, if a mirror doesn't reflect back, it's not working, right? The function of a mirror is to reflect back what it's in front of, right? Okay, again, humor me. What's the function of a window? What is a window supposed to do? To see through. To see through, right? A window enables me to see the world beyond the space that I'm in. All right, we clear on this? Yes? Yes or yes? Yes, yes okay. Eucharist is window and mirror. Now, I've been praying with this. I've been praying with this, and I, I just, I've been so struck. I've been so struck by these two images because I've been in, just increasingly, yeah, 
I guess, struck by how accurate, how, how profound this is if we actually settle into this, if we let this kind of enter our minds and our hearts. This is what I want to talk about this afternoon. You with me? Yes? Okay. So, it's hard to miss this point, but like, just a, 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 I don't know, a, a brief read of the Gospels. If you've been to Mass and, and, and with any kind of consistency, one of the things that becomes very obvious is that Jesus seems to be very interested in healing us, in particular with our sight. Jesus is very interested in healing our sight over and over and over again, right? Like the very beginning of his ministry, he strolls into the synagogue at Nazareth. He unrolls the scroll from Isaiah and he says, he quotes the prophet. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor, to proclaim release to prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim a year of favor to the Lord. That's the, this is the inaugural sermon, the synagogue at Nazareth. And people freak out about this, right? Or, I mean, he is walking down the road and there's this guy named Bartimaeus who calls out to him, Lord, son of David, have pity on me. He says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, I want to see. And he heals his sight. He restores his sight right there. Or the, the man born blind, we hear about him during Lent. The man born blind who Jesus, remember how he spits in the ground, makes the mud, smears the mud in the guy's eyes, and then says, go wash in the pool, the pool of Siloam. And he comes back and Jesus says, this, is, this was for the glory of God. Or think about, like, at the beginning of John's gospel, you've got the, the disciples of John the Baptist, Right? John the Baptist, who looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Right? So John the Baptist, there's disciples, start following Jesus, and he turns around and he asks them, What are you looking for? What are you seeking? What do you desire? And they say to him, Master, where are you staying? Master, where are you staying? And Jesus responds to them, Come and become one who sees. It's an invitation for them to see, because earlier in the Gospel, Jesus says, This, this generation, they look but they do not see. Like over and over and over again throughout the Gospels, it's clear that Jesus, he sees something that we don't see. Like he sees that there's a problem with our sight. He sees that we don't see things the way we're supposed to see them. We don't see creation the way we're supposed to see it. We don't see God the way we're supposed to see it. We see, it's like we see through these sin-tainted lenses. Like imagine someone took your glasses, those of you who have glasses, and someone stomped on your glasses and the lenses were all smashed up. It'd be hard to see the world. That's what, that's what the fall did to us. We don't see things the way we're supposed to see them. We don't see each other the way we're supposed to see each other. Most especially, Jesus is getting at this, is that we don't see ourselves the way we were supposed to see ourselves. We don't see ourselves the way we're supposed to see ourselves. I want to press into this, this idea of the Eucharist is mere, and we don't see ourselves the way we're supposed to see ourselves. I want to press into this with great reverence because I, I, I just know, because I hear confessions, because I walk with a lot of people, I just know, and because I was a high schooler too at one point, that there's not an insignificant number of us who, when we look, our, look at ourselves in the mirror, like, there's a lot of things about us that we hate. When we look in the mirror, there's a long list of things that I wish I could change. It's pretty incredible how much the enemy has got us to hate ourselves. I want us to watch this for a second. And just, when you watch this video, I want you to pay attention. How cute is that girl, by the way? I want you to pay attention, both the gentlemen and the ladies, I want you to pay attention to your heart. Notice what bubbles up. Notice what moves in your heart as we watch this. I don't need anyone to answer, but just, okay, the first, 
that first girl, when they asked her, what would you change about your body? I mean, she says, a mermaid tail, right? I just, I just want you to pay attention to like, what you just felt shift in your heart when she said that. For all of us, right? For all of us. Look, I, this isn't a talk about body image. It's not what I intend to do, but I just know that like, somewhere along the line, that we, somewhere along the line, we begin to agree with things that the enemy says, which is we begin to agree to hate ourselves. We, we make agreements to look at the person that we are, and somewhere along the line, we learn to hate our bodies. And look, your, your body is you. You are your body, which means we learn to hate ourselves. And then deeper than that, deeper than our flesh, deeper than parts of our bodies, deeper than your hatred of your forehead or your arms or your belt, like deeper than any of those things, like we learn to, we begin to hate aspects of our person. We begin to hate the person that we are. Like the person who's staring back at us. We begin to hate the hidden interior person who's looking back at us because there's, there's regrets that we have, there's shame that we have, there's, there's remorse that we have. Like, like along the way, we begin to look into the mirror and, and, and it's this, like, you're not the person I want you to be. Like my story, I, I'm not becoming the person that I want to be. Like I've made decisions that I regret. There's habits and addictions and things that I'm so ashamed of. There's things, there's secrets that we collect and that we bury and that when we look at ourselves in the mirror, it's a real hatred of the person that we are. And it's around this time, like I said, that this subtle self-hatred comes in. We start listening to the voice of the enemy and the enemy, he just begins to invite us to agree to hate who we are. And it becomes this background noise that we just grow accustomed to, this self-hatred. We become convinced that, that this is how God would evaluate us. That God would look upon us with the same critical lenses, the same, self, the same disgust that we have when we look upon ourselves. Because the things that we hide, the things that we bury, the things that we mask, all of it. We think that if Jesus were to gaze upon me, if I were to see him seeing me, he would be filled with the same sense of disgust and hatred that I have when I look upon myself, or the same look of disappointment. Friends, this is where I want to talk about Jesus as the mirror, the Eucharist as the mirror. Because the Eucharist is the most, it's, it's healing. The Eucharist is healing. Because it's telling you the truth of who you are if I can put it that way. It tells you the truth of who you are. Like the consecrated host that hides in the monstrance, like what we discover there is a love that is patient and a love that is kind, that is full of mercy, gazing back upon you with infinite delight. Like what you see is reflected in his eyes is who you actually are. It's your story. Like when your story is told most truly, it's because it's being reflected back to you from Jesus' face. Like, to look upon him, looking upon you, that's the truest telling of who you are. That's the truest telling of who you are. I want you to look at this image. I came across this sculpture a few years ago. It's called The Heart of God. It's by this American sculptor named Victor Issa. But in, the, in this sculpture, he's depicting the moment. He's depicting the moment when in the gospel where that woman who is caught 
in the act of adultery is thrown to the floor in front of Jesus. I mean, there's really not many worse moments to meet Jesus than when you've just been caught in the act of committing adultery. But here she is, right? So you've got the Pharisees, the religious leaders who literally grab this woman out of sin, out of what she's doing, and she is guilty. She is doing something she shouldn't be doing. They rip her out of the home. Imagine, like, what is she even wearing, if anything, right? And they throw this woman to the feet of Jesus, and they've got rocks in their hands. They say, Lord, according to the Mosaic law, we should stone her. What do you say? And he says, let the one among you who is without sin throw the first stone, and they all go away. It's the best audience that he has. And says he's left alone with her. And he asks her, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, nowhere. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Right? This is the moment that he's depicting. Like, look at, look at her face. Look at the awe that's like erupting in her as she sees how she's being seen. As she sees how she's being seen which is like with so much love and so much kindness and so much tenderness. Like, he knows her sin. He sees through it all. He says, I delight in you. I delight in you. There's, an, there's a hymn that I, I really love. It's an old church hymn called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. There's, there's a line in that song where it says, turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. The bravest thing you could do is let Jesus actually look upon you. In particular, I want to speak to the, my brothers in the room here for a moment. The manliest man who's ever walked this earth was Jesus. He was not this mousy, weak wimp. He was not a first century, like, I don't know, self-help guru. Like, he was, a, he was a warrior. He was a warrior. He was a shepherd. He was a king. He was a lover. Like, at the end of the movie Braveheart, who's seen Braveheart? Anybody seen Braveheart? I don't know where you guys are. You need to see Braveheart. There's a line at the end of Braveheart. This isn't a spoiler, but there's a line that says that they fought like warrior poets. Like in the heart of every man is desire to be both warrior and poet. This is who Jesus is. And the bravest men that I know, the most incredibly manly men that I know, the strongest men that I know, are the ones who've had the courage to let Jesus actually look upon them. To let themselves be seen by him. Like you are not who you think you are, is the point of this. Like, your telling of your own story, like you narrating what you see when you look in the mirror, that's not the true telling of your story. You are not who you think you are. You are who, who, you are who he says you are. You are the person that's reflected back in his gaze. That's who you are. Like, the Eucharist as mirror is healing. It's healing. There's a, there's a line in one of the Vatican II documents. You guys still with me? Yeah? Okay. There's a line in one of the Vatican II documents where they say this, that the, 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 the bishops say this, the church says this, that Christ, who's the final Adam, he fully reveals man to himself and makes his supreme calling clear. 
This is one of John Paul II, Carol Wojtyla, this is one of the lines that he contributed to the documents, that it's Jesus, it's Jesus who fully reveals man to himself. You want to know who you are. You will never know who you are if you do not look to the mystery of Christ. You will never understand the mystery of yourself unless you look to Christ to answer the question for you. You have to look to Jesus. It's Jesus who fully reveals man to himself. And then they say this, and it's Jesus who makes your supreme calling clear. It's Jesus who reveals where you're headed. If you want to know your story, you have to know, not only know where, you're, where, you're, where you come from, you have to know where you're going. Like, where is this going? Jesus is the answer to that question. He reveals where you're going. That's the second part of this. That's the second part of this. This, the, this idea of Eucharist as window. And I want to talk about this for a second. I'm not going to spend as much time on this. Christ makes our supreme calling clear. In other words, he reveals our destiny. He reveals our destiny. I'm going to share a story about uh, discovering this idea of Eucharist as window. It was, it was in those early months of the lockdown, 2020, when the pandemic was just starting, we were all shut down with COVID. And I was at my first assignment. I was in Cleveland Heights. And just like all of you, I like just figuring out what to do day to day. It's very bizarre when the life of a priest suddenly stops and you don't have people to minister to. You're trying to say mass looking at a camera. It was very awful. Anyway, so at a certain point, it was probably February or March, that January, earlier that January, I just buried my last surviving grandparent. This is my dad's dad. Look at him, how cool he is. Sitting on the back of my parents' boat. He's just cooler than all of us. Anyway, he died in January of 2020, and he got out of here just in time before the world ended, and uh, I was really jealous after that. I was like, you son of a gun, right? Yeah. Anyway, so I was, uh, I was at my parish. I was sitting in adoration because I, like, I, like, I, had, I felt like I'd finished Netflix, like there was nothing else to watch. I'd finished the internet. I'd watched all the YouTube, and it was like, okay, I might as well pray. Okay, so... I'm sitting in front of the Blessed Sacrament in the chapel that we had at the rectory, and, uh, and I'm sitting there thinking about the pandemic, thinking about how frustrating all of this is, and just, I wanted to scream, and I just, I'm looking at Jesus going, what is going on right now? Like, what makes sense of this? What is going on right now? And into my prayer, into my mind, so often the Lord speaks to me in, uh, like, movie scenes or clips from TV shows, but especially movie scenes. I'm sitting there, what is going on right now? And all of a sudden, this scene from a Superman movie comes into my mind. I'm like, I'm not thinking about Superman. It's, you know, the Henry Cavill one where, um, anyway, it's this one where, like, who's, who's that actress? Amy, Amy Adams. Adams. I want to say Jenna Fisher, but that's not who that is. Yeah, Jenna Fisher, she's Pam. 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 Okay. Um, Amy Adams. Okay, so this one. So I'm sitting there, and this is the scene. I, I just screamed this question at Jesus, and the Holy Spirit just goes, bloop, with this scene. Let's watch this real quick. So I was sitting in adoration, screaming at Jesus about the pandemic, and this scene comes into my mind. And I'm thinking, all right, Lord, yeah, like, I want to be, be like Superman. I just want to, like, break through all of this. I want to smash the handcuffs. Like, I want to, like, lock down. And he's like, no, 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 no. And, like, scene after scene from movies and TV shows, like, like interrogation scenes like this, where, like, you got the one person. We've all seen movies and TV shows like this, where there's, there's like, one person in one room, right? waiting to be interrogated, waiting to be questioned, and there's always the, the two-way mirror in the room, right? 
And on the inside of the room, right, you just see reflected back your world. You just see it, it's, it's opaque. You, it just reflects back to you what you see in the room. But on the other side, right, there's always the other room where you've got like the, the lawyers or the detectives. And in this case, you've got the government people like looking through the window, looking through this two-way mirror from like another world, from another room gazing in. And like, like the Lord like was flashing these scenes through my mind, scene after scene after scene, and then he just says to me, like, it was like this audible voice, like, like this is what is happening right now. Like, this is what's happening right now. As I'm staring at the Blessed Sacrament, as I'm staring at Jesus, it's like, this is what's happening right now. And all of a sudden, as I was just drawn closer and closer to the Blessed Sacrament, I just felt like I was up close right here. It was like I just all of a sudden like saw through it. Like I saw through it. And then I see the face of my, my grandpa, who I just buried. And he's, he's standing there next to my grandma, who died in 2006. And they, they looked alive and young and and then, and then my Uncle Bruce came into this scene. My Uncle Bruce, who died in 2012, he was there. And then my mom's parents like, came into focus. And then there was all these other people that I had loved and buried and said goodbye to. And then like these other saints, the faces of some saints came forward. And it, like, it was so striking. It was so striking. Like it, it hit me. That like, that heaven, like all of heaven, is just on the other side of this Eucharist. Is just on the other side of the Blessed Sacrament. All of heaven is there. All of heaven is there. I just want to end with this. That like, like there, there is a glory there's a glory that we are called to, that we're destined for. Like, we don't, we don't spend enough time thinking about heaven. We, like, when we do think about heaven, we think about fluffy clouds and, like, fat baby angels and people with harps and, and probably not much else. And, like, if that's what heaven is, I don't want it. <laughs> that seems pretty boring. Like, I'll get bored of that within five minutes. Jesus says things like this. The scriptures say things like this, that no eye has seen, no ear has heard what awaits us. St. Paul has said things like this, that after Paul had like a little taste of heaven, this little glimpse of heaven, he says, I consider all of the sufferings of this present age as nothing to be revealed, as nothing compared to the, the glory to be revealed in us. Like this is Paul who like, like the sufferings that he himself has suffered beyond imagining. And he's saying all of the suffering that every person has ever experienced, he's like, it's nothing compared to what's awaiting us. Or there was a moment where Therese of Lisieux, Therese, right? Where is Therese? She's somewhere on one of these posters. Therese had this encounter with, with the glory of heaven where she got to taste a little bit of what's coming. And she comes back from this experience of prayer and she says, I would be willing to suffer every martyrdom of every martyr that has ever lived if I could experience one degree more of what I just experienced in heaven. I, I don't know what that means, to be totally honest with you, but whatever that means, it means that like, 
Like what's awaiting us on the other side of the Eucharist is beyond our wildest imagining. Like it is a mirror. He is a mirror that's reflecting back to you who you truly are. And he's also a window through which you get to see where this is headed. Like, friends, we are living in a time where people are losing hope. This is the most hopeless generation because we don't know where the story goes. He's where the story goes. He's where the story goes.